When Marco Polo came back from China to Venice, he was, according to contemporaneous accounts, a bubbly over with stories about his travels. And as I said, he wasn't the first. He was just by far the most complete, the most vivid, the most colorful and immediate in his details. Imagine traveling across the world, but not on an airplane, not by car, but on your own two feet and on the backs of animals. Now, imagine doing that for two decades. Marco Polo was a Genoese merchant whose travels gained notoriety in his time and whose name survives across the many hundreds of years since he was alive. There is far, far more to the man, though, than just his name. He traveled across the known world and served the great Khan. Join us as we explore the life and impact of this fascinating man. This is Riches and Power, the podcast where we explore the industries and trends that shaped our world with experts renowned in their field of study. I'm your host, Alex Dubay, and I'm glad you're here as we explore topics both large and small, familiar and strange, and near and far. Join me as we learn about the forces that bent the world around them and built the world as we know it today. Lawrence Burgreen is an accomplished historian and writer. He's written for a who's who of national publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Newsweek. Additionally, he's published a number of just fabulous books, including Louis Armstrong, An Extravagant Life, Magellan, Over the Edge of the World, and as we'll be discussing today, a wonderful book about one of history's greatest adventurers, Marco Polo, From Venice to Xanadu. Learn more about Lawrence and his writing by visiting lawrencebergreen.com. Larry, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to the conversation. Thanks, Alex. Glad to be here. For me, at least, I think the biggest way in which I know the name Marco Polo was when I was growing up, we'd be yeah. in the pool, we'd yell, Marco, Polo, we'd, we'd try yeah. to find each other right. somewhere in the pool where we were closing our eyes. Right. right. But I, I read your book recently, and it turns out he's he's way more than just a a pool game, and he was fascinating, uh, an amazing adventurer. How did you come to discover Marco, so to speak? What what captivated you enough to write a book about the guy? Well, he's uh, I've been writing about exploration and discovery for a while, and Ferdinand Magellan and others, and uh, Marco Polo was looming there in the background as the one who preceded everybody. Of course, he didn't go by sea. He bent, went over land most of the time. And he was a legendary figure, in some ways widely misunderstood. And uh, there's a lot of information about Marco Polo going back to, oh, 150 years and forward, and a lot of controversy about who he was. Did he go to China? And a lot of questions about who he was, what he did, were his travels legitimate? Did he actually meet uh, Kublai Khan? and what was China like in those days, etc. So I looked into it, talking with various experts, as well as I possibly could. I traveled what I thought were his footsteps through across China and Mongolia, which was exceptionally exciting, trying to compare his account with the reality. Now, the, the other question, this is very challenging for a historian, what is his account? Because he didn't actually write it himself. Um, he dictated it when he came back to Venice when he was in his mid-40s, um, having been away for uh, 17 years at least, 
in a sense, a lifetime, was considered by the standards of the day an old man. And he dictated his account to a uh, second or third tier poet named Rusticello of Pisa, who was visiting him in his cell in Genoa. Well, why was Marco Polo in his cell in Genoa? Because Venice and Genoa were constantly battling each other. Keep in mind, this is before the unification of Italy. Italy was a lot of city-states often doing battle, and Marco Polo, as uh, one of the um, upper-class members of uh, Venetian society, which was tiny, was uh, honor-bound to at least um, you know, mount a ship, go into battle, and so he wound up in what we would now call a country club prison in Genoa, and that was there for a while, and that's where uh, Rusticello of Pisa caught up with him. So what we really know about this comes from the pen of Rusticello of Pisa. We don't really have letters or accounts of Marco Polo. And uh, just to make it even more confusing, their assumptions in that time in the 14th century are really different uh, from ours about uh, literally which way was up, about time, about uh, scientific things. They believe that uh, the uh, sun revolved around the earth and so many other things. So their assumptions about reality were different from ours. That's why it's possible that a lot of Marco Polo's accounts were uh, fabricated or embellished. That's probably a better word. Then, just to add to the, to the mixture complication, there are many different versions of Rusticello's manuscript. Uh, some are twice as long as others. So, you know, which is the real one? His is actual version that we should use. This is, you can say it's a little bit like Shakespeare folios. One varies slightly from another. Uh, there are some missing speeches or other things. But this is, in, in, in this case, there could be dozens or even hundreds of pages missing from one account attributed to Rusticello Pisa to another. So what is a historian to do? And I really, besides consulting experts, I tried to use common sense about what was the most uh, likely, the most appropriate, the consensus approach to it. A lot of people are really convinced that Marco Polo didn't go to China, that he made the whole thing up. As proof, they cite things such as the fact that he didn't mention the Great Wall of China and other things. Well, there are some simple answers to that. There was no Great Wall at that point. It hadn't been built. It would have been suspicious if he had mentioned it because it didn't come for a century or two later. Also, he spent most of his time in Mongolia um, in the court of Kublai Khan, who was the Mongol invader emperor, although very broad-minded uh, and enlightened, uh, if you will, for that era. But it was a different culture. So it was not what we think of as being the Han Chinese culture. So he, he gives descriptions of uh, many parts of China from one end to the other and Mongolia. But um, you have to keep in mind that when we say China, what, what do we really mean by it in terms of uh, Marco Polo? It means China and Mongolia. Also, there are other parts of it that what did he actually do there uh, for all those years that he was there? Well, we know that Kublai Khan, like other rulers, um, employed foreigners uh, for sensitive tasks like tax collecting. Well, why would they do that? Because they didn't have a dog in that fight, if you will. They were outsiders, and uh, they were considered more reliable than if he had tried uh, a uh, somebody who was a Mongol 
or a Chinese. And there were other Venetians who did that, uh, not just Marco Polo. So um, he had a, a job that was partly diplomacy and partly tax collecting, which gave him an excuse or a reason to travel widely around China. Does, does this mean he went to all the places that he describes in detail? Well, probably not, because it seems likely that he gathered information from other people um, and then passed it off as his own uh, or incorporated it into his account. So it seemed as if he was talking from personal experience. And in some cases, he probably wasn't. In other cases, there's no other source for what Marco Polo was discussing. And uh, it seems likely that he did it. Also, I think the the real hardcore Marco Polo doubters or skeptics uh, will say, well, we don't have any records from China or Mongolia about Marco Polo. So there's no proof that he was actually there. We have this massive Rusticello of Pisa uh, document, but uh, that's really all. However, not too many years ago, some scholars uh, were poring over some Chinese histories, and they came across Marco Polo and his father, because he traveled with them, under their Chinese names. And that's taken now as uh, some proof, however tenuous, that they were actually there. Um, but again, the, the best proof is that time and again, he describes things which you could only have seen, one could only have seen uh, firsthand um, if he had actually been there. And my assumption is that to some extent, he looms much larger in our Western memory than he might have in the Chinese memory, because to them, he was a, a tax collector. To us, he's Marco Polo. Oh, yes. Uh, we often say, oh, Marco Polo discovered China. Well, not really, because... A lot um, of people knew it was there. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people knew it was there. And a lot of other people from Venice and other European city-states had gone there on trading missions. Uh, so he and he went with his father and uncle were uh, one more. We remember him and them because he wrote about it. If a bunch of the other merchants of Venice or Genoa or other city-states had written about it, you know, we would know about it. In fact, we have some other accounts of uh, these travels written by other, uh, well, we would call them explorers, going along the same route that Marco Polo describes, but they're much skimpier. They don't really give all the details and all the insight. He really fleshes it out with what we would now call a lot of context. Uh, so that's part of what gives it its charm. At the same time, um, there's very little personal information there. You know, we can glean a little bit indirectly about his development as leaving Venice as a 17-year-old, coming back many years later as a middle-aged man. And, you know, how did he change? How did all those years on the road, we know he was gone all that time, change him? Well, in the first place, he went with his father and uncle. And this is worth keeping in mind. This was their second trip to China. Imagine if they had kept a record of their first trip. And we could compare trip number one and trip number two with their young son and nephew. But we don't. So we just have to take their word that, you know, they went. They but but they probably did go a second time. So they they were known quantities when they went to China and Mongolia. If you uh, have ever been there, you realize these are two hugely different places. China 
the most advanced civilization in the world at that point, far ahead of Europe in math, science, art, poetry, you name it. Mongolia, which was in some ways, well, we could say, to use a uh, conventional expression, the Wild West, the Mongolians were highly sophisticated and they were nomadic. They didn't believe in personal property. They changed their uh, residence, their grazing grounds twice a year. Um, so they were constantly wandering. So you had two very different cultures that were yoked together by Kublai Khan. The Mongols had managed to conquer or rule them for a while. Well, how did they do this? Kublai Khan was, was wise because he took on as many Chinese customs, dress to some extent, religion, and other reasons, other things, as he could to mimic Chinese. So they did not feel that he was totally alien or foreign or unappreciative of, of them. So he wanted to incorporate Chinese culture, letters, et cetera, et cetera, in this vast Mongol empire, which, you know, didn't last that long, but it made him one of the wiser or wisest rulers around in that era. Keep in mind, there was no rapid means of communication across this huge um, empire that stretched several thousand miles. The closest thing they had was a Pony Express. And uh, that, of course, was rather slow. So just maintaining this immense empire was in itself a uh, kind of a feat that was, uh, you know, really extraordinary. So when I keep talking about, well, things were different then, you know, they really were different. Marco Polo wrote this book, The Travels of Marco Polo, as it's come to be known. And that was Rusticello of Pisa, the, the ghostwriter of sorts, who put that book together. He's the ghostwriter, you know, the amanuensis, yes. Right. While they were in prison together in Genoa in the, the late 1200s, I think it was. And yeah. it struck me as a very unlikely setting for a, a book to be written and, and to become a, a bestseller of sorts. And I, I think it seems fair to describe it as a 13th century bestseller. How did it come to be such a bestseller at that time when there just weren't so many books as there were today? When Marco Polo came back from China to Venice, he was, according to contemporaneous accounts, uh, bubbling over with stories about his travels. And the same when he was in Bridget. And he was talking about Kublai Khan. And uh, people, basically, people said, you, you know, we've got to get some of this down. This is, you know, really important and interesting. Eventually, he ran out of steam, but um, I think that was part of it. And as I said, he wasn't the first. He was just by far the most complete, the most vivid, the most colorful and immediate in his details. And, you know, people have been trying to catch him out and say, well, he couldn't have done this. That wasn't possible. That didn't happen. And nobody has actually really caught him out in a major error or instance of, of, of fabrication. Uh, do they think that he sort of, uh, you know, kind of rounded off some of the square edges there and uh, maybe exaggerated his importance or something like that? Yes. On the other hand, we don't know much about his personal life there. Well, if he was going from a 17-year-old to somebody who was in middle age, did, did he get married? Uh, what kind of relations did he have? Did he have any, any children, any intimate relations with people along the way? You know, we don't really know. He doesn't really talk about it. Uh, we can imagine, oh, he said, oh, I met this wonderful bit. He's just talking. We, we, have, we have nothing of that. Now, on the other hand, in those days, people didn't write about their personal lives. 
That came later in the Renaissance. And there began to be some exploration about the inner life and personal lives. So again, it would have been highly unusual if uh, Marco Polo started writing about personal anecdotes about things. But fair to say that it was a 13th century bestseller of sorts because he was writing about things that people hadn't really even imagined in their biggest daydreams. Yes. Also, keep in mind that it was all, this was pre-Gutenberg. That makes a huge difference to make an analogy, uh, which I'm not the first one, is like saying pre-computer or pre-digital. Because pre-Gutenberg meant that you had a much smaller number of documents, of manuscripts, of tomes. Uh, You didn't have a printing press. They were all handwritten? They're all handwritten. There were printing presses in China, incidentally, because China was way advanced over the West at that point. So the accounts of Marco Polo spread very slowly. With the advent of the Gutenberg printing press, they spread more quickly. You know, for example, if Shakespeare had lived, you know, earlier, uh, before Gutenberg, who knows what we would have known about his uh, plays. Maybe not much. Maybe somebody might have written them down, but maybe not. So, you know, it, it made an enormous difference. So, you know, the word got out about Marco Polo slowly. And I think that's, you know, especially by our standards. And he was considered somewhat of a crackpot. There is a story, maybe it's apocryphal, about uh, Marco after he got out of jail, being around Venice and children chasing him, saying, Marco Polo, Marco Polo, tell us another lie. And if that story, even if it's apocryphal, what it suggests is that, you know, his credibility was not that high. And, you know, I'm not sure what it means to say, you know, a bestseller, because one couldn't actually go and easily get a manuscript. There were uh, copies of manuscripts in uh, ecclesiastical archives. There were no bookstores to speak of. And uh, so it was a rather specialized document. That all adds to the mystique of his travels and, you know, I think makes it even more exciting or intriguing about, you know, what he saw. One of the things that so struck me in reading your book was he was coming back with these fantastic stories that that it's obvious that the, the folks back in the 13th century were just struck by his incredible things that he seen. And when we think about travel these days, I, I think about a really long flight as being a 15-hour flight. Oh my gosh, I don't want to be on a 15-hour flight. Right. Whereas Marco Polo <laughs> was involved in just such a different scale of travel, I think, than we ever encounter these days. 15 years. Right. He was traveling for, I think it was 24 years, all told, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that's right. And I remember in particular, it took him three years to get to China from Venice. Three years. Right, right. And I wonder, Larry, did you find it difficult to put yourself in that kind of slow timeline with our modern perspective as you were writing this book? Did those decades become sort of hard to digest? At first, it was, I found it very, very daunting. But maybe you have this experience, you know, because I lived with these documents for a number of years you know, after a while, you begin seeing the situation and kind of projecting yourself into it. And it comes to seem not second nature, but, you know, sort of natural. Oh, yes, this is how it was. They were doing it this way. So, you know, after a while, I got used to it. But I have to tell you, in some ways, when I finished my book, which was published in 2007 and generally well received, 
you know, in some ways I had more questions at the end because, you know, going through all this material very carefully made me think even harder about how did this happen and uh, what was the importance. Um, some of the things that were most interesting were the inventions from China that were technologically way ahead of us uh, in the West that people, did, for example, things as simple and basic as paper money, which was the norm in China. There was no paper money. It was all gems uh, and possibly coins. Of course, paper money had a huge advantage uh, for a lot of reasons. Back in Europe, they only had gems or, or coins. Yes. And uh, gunpowder, you know, I think, uh, you know, you can just take it from there. Um, there was no gunpowder. People were generally aware of it, but nobody really knew how to use it or how to apply it. And there was China using it for rockets and weapons that also made an enormous difference. Ground glass for glasses, also um, prevalent in China, not known in Europe at that point. So Marco Polo was really, he was going into an alien landscape as much as it seemed alien to all the Europeans back home reading about his travels. That must have been bizarre for him. Yes. You know, people say, oh, Marco Polo discovered China and he brought back spaghetti. Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, did, to repeat, he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't discover China uh, because, you know, there were many other people who had been going. And spaghetti or pasta was already pretty well known in Europe at that point. So he was not bringing that back to surprise Europeans. We can check spaghetti off the list of things that Marco Polo brought back from China. Many others that I mentioned, like... Uh, uh, ground glass and gunpowder and paper money and others are, you know, much more significant, I think, than uh, spaghetti. Jumping into Marco's actual travels, he set off from Venice as a, a teenager, as a fairly young man with his family. In the company of his father and uncle. Father and uncle. And, and they were heading towards China broadly. What were they seeking out? Well, for the father and uncle, this was a follow-up to their first mission. So they were going to go see Kublai Khan. They were going to trade in gems, which they could carry in their pockets because they were small and bring back to uh, the West. And they were very valuable. And uh, that was their main reason for going. Do we know absolutely everything? No, we really don't. You know, we have a pretty good partial idea of what they were doing. And as I as I uh, hinted before, even this term Silk Road is a misnomer because um, it was only coined in the 19th century by a German scholar. And uh, nobody in Marco Polo's time in the 13th century or 14th century said, you know, hi, I'm going off on the Silk Road. See you in 25 years. There were a network of trade routes that people took. And that idea of the Silk Road was so pervasive in your book because the the Silk Road, as as to your point, this network of trade routes was incredibly important to just enabling the Polos to even get to China. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the Silk Road was? Well, the Silk Road is, as I said, this uh, somewhat artificial term that was supposed to lead from Europe to uh, some part of China, to Beijing, which Marco Polo called Kambalak, or some other areas. But in fact, it was a network where there were many different Silk Roads, if you will. You know, as I said, Silk was just one item going along um, you know, these, these trade routes. And, uh, it's a, you know, it's sort of a useful or helpful simplification of I mean, you saying Silk Road, people nod and they know what you mean, but really it's, it's, it's a little more, you know, complicated than that. And also it makes more sense that, uh, you know, it wasn't a road 
that people went along. You know, there were, it wasn't like the superhighway. There were a number of them. It, it wasn't like the polos were walking down I-35 with well-marked exit signs and like a modern-day highway by any stretch. No, no. Uh, they were off on an adventure, which could be very dangerous. The fact that they even survived it, I think, speaks well of their abilities and their flexibility to survive. One of the things I tried to do in my book is I tried to speculate about what Marco Polo's own life was like and how he might have evolved during all these years that he was away. And uh, this is, again, a lot of this is like it's informed speculation on my part. Digging a little more deeply into this idea of the Silk Road, I, I think you have to touch on the Mongols and, and Kublai Khan in, in particular, because the Silk Road was, to your point, it's still dangerous, certainly by our modern day standards, but remarkable from the, the viewpoint of uh, the Polos traveled from Venice to China and Mongolia in what we might say is relative safety. And what I think is interesting there is that the Mongols were extraordinarily feared from the European perspective. They were known as the, the Tartars, I think I read in your book, from Tartarus, from you know, the, the, the ancient conception of hell. So they were very scary to Europeans. And yet, Kublai Khan and the Mongols enabled the Silk Road to be relatively safe. And that strikes me as so important and strange for that period of time. Unique is maybe a better word. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the Mongols did to enable the relative safety of the Silk Road? Well, they basically uh, gave them, uh, identified them as uh, people who should not be harmed. They gave them an early version of a passport. That They gave the Polos a passport? Yes. And other traders like them. Uh, that said they enjoyed the protection of Kublai Khan. That way, you know, they were, didn't completely free them of danger, but it meant that they were not going to be, you know, if you will, mugged or, you know, slaughtered along the way. It seemed to me that just on common sense, the biggest danger they might have faced beside the physical strenuousness of it was illness. And we hear at one point an account that Marco Polo did get very ill. We don't really know what what kind of disease this was. I, you know, could speculate in the book uh, about certain things that it might have been or it might not have been. You know, we just don't know. But in fact, he, you know, did survive intact. The next question is, did he learn any Chinese or Mongolian dialects? And, you know, we're not sure. It's really possible that he did, but we don't really know. I don't know how far he would have gotten speaking in the Venetian dialect, which even in another part of Italy was not readily understood. So he had to have learned something. Um, and also, it seemed to me that, you know, of course, Venice and Italy was a center of faith, of a devout Catholic faith. And you get a sense when he's talking about the customs and the practices of some of the people whom he encountered along the way, especially in Mongolia, that his own perceptions changed, again, my, the way it seemed to me, and, you know, I, I could be wrong, uh, over time and evolved. And it went from being rather narrow, orthodox, and doctrinaire to a wider, uh, different way of looking at things. And he particularly is striking when he talks about Buddhists and Buddhism, which any, you know, if you will, self-respecting or orthodox Venetian Catholic would dismiss as so much idolatry, you know, all these statues. However, Marco Polo, 
talks about it with a growing sense of appreciation. And it's almost as if he's taking on some of the characteristics or seeing some of the validity of other spiritual paths. And he alludes to this a few times. And I think that would have made sense or been not unusual for someone who left home young and was away from home for so many years. Yeah, it's it's very easy to imagine yourself living in a foreign place for two decades. One would think you'd have to take on some of the local customs. And to your earlier point, one would assume you learned the language. It, it seems hard to believe that you wouldn't have learned the language. Yes, we just don't know for sure. So some of this is, uh, you know, assumption, educated guessing, whatever you want to call it on on my part. But other, you know, not uh, you know, it's I tried to make it borne out by the facts. Uh, wherever possible. But when he got back to Venice, um, he, he dropped all this, uh, uh, you know, if, if there was any spiritualism, Buddhism, whatever you want to call it, that was gone. He, he went back to being Catholic and known as being rather cranky and not uh, happy to, you know, entertain people or as a celebrity with great stories or, or anything like that. So, you know, what's really remarkable is you know, this testament that was left behind that, you know, he dictated uh, to Rusticello of, of Pisa. So who I mentioned was not in the first rank of uh, scribes or, or poets of that time, but he had the, you know, good luck to be there, good fortune, you know, in the right place at the right time. If there had been no Rusticello of Pisa, uh, well, we would know a lot less about Marco Polo, but also, especially during the Renaissance, Europe would have known a lot less about China because that came to be known as the most important source of information about China and Chinese culture, Chinese science. And that was the go-to book, if you will. So uh, belatedly, after Marco Polo's lifetime, you know, acquired that uh, tremendous importance and that uh, kind of almost folkloric quality about, you know, Marco Polo and the, you know, swimming pool and all that sort of stuff. I think just helped by his euphonious name. It is a great name. When Marco Polo and his father and uncle got to Mongolia, got to Kanbalik in particular, and saw Kublai Khan, who was the, the grandson, I believe it was, of Genghis Khan, right, the, the greatest of, of all Khans who united the Mongol Empire, uh, he ended up, Marco that is, ended up serving... Kublai as as a tax collector, et cetera, for, for almost two decades. Yes. Did you get a sense in reading Marco's accounts as to what it was like for Marco, the the relative boy, or at least the, the younger man, arriving in the court of the great Khan uh, from Europe? Was was that something like arriving on another planet or something like that? Because it must have felt so alien to him. Yeah. It must have been extraordinary. He was probably, again, I'm speculating, probably prepared for it by his father and uncle who were making their second trip so they could serve as guides. But yeah, it must have been, you know, really, really extraordinary. I think that's what's so fascinating about travel in that particular era, because you didn't have to go far to be in a completely different environment, culture and language. And again, you know, things were so different because China was so far advanced over the West at that point. There's a immense uh, many-volume encyclopedia of Chinese science uh, written by an English scholar, Joseph Needham, over a period of years, uh, 20 or 30 years that he compiled. 
that just tried to categorize all the advances in Chinese science. And, you know, it's really extraordinary. I think we forget how sophisticated it was and that the Mongolians also had their own culture, their own language, their own strengths, their terrific horsemanship, which was really extraordinary. And uh, they also had their, you know, distinctive beverages. I talked about uh, kumis. Was this the, the mare's milk? Yeah, the fermented mare's milk. I, I can honestly say I've never even gotten close to trying that. Yeah, I, I've actually tried it, and I've lived to tell the tale. So <laughs> I, I'm speaking with you. I mean, to our palate, it, it's it, it's terrible. But uh, I think the best comparison would be spoiled milk. But considering the fact that it consisted of cow's milk and cow's urine and who knows what else, and yet it was their, you know, uh, their kind of basic beverage, their beer, if you will. Anyway, it was it was really a different world, and I, I felt the most helpful thing to do when I was researching this book was to put my own assumptions aside about that part of the world and try and take Marco Polo's account and other accounts from that era at face value, because uh, after all, they were there. And I think if you read over the text, you know, very carefully, you begin to see uh, some nuances that are not apparent in the, you know, more cliched versions. As I said, that's why I went through the the longest edition of it, which was twice as long as some others, to try and get as much detail as, as possible. In the 19th century, there were two uh, English language uh, scholars who went through it, Yule and Courtier, and uh, they had a two-volume account heavily annotated about it. So you got some sense from them, but they were really products of their era. And in some ways, they obscured as much as they revealed. Although if you're going to study Marco Polo, you really have to go to Yule and Courtier. And again, you know, I, I, I just wonder, in, uh, in China, uh, Marco Polo isn't necessarily that well known. Um, when I was in China, when I happened to be there, I asked a number of people about Marco Polo, and they didn't know that much about him. You know, they didn't think of him as a great figure the way we do. And eventually I came across a... Uh, a statue that had been very recently erected in honor of Marco Polo. But I talked with Chinese people, by the way, many of whom spoke English, about the statue. They shook their head. They didn't think too much about it. They didn't seem to be to be a, uh, a major figure at all and, uh, you know, something to do with the West. And that's about all. Marco was a trader. Obviously, he went over with the Polo Company with his his father and his uncle over to the the court of the the Great Khan. But he also ended up serving as a tax collector and, and a kind of pseudo government official for Kublai Khan. How did he come into that role? Did he stumble into that, or, or was he picked out as kind of a talented young man? How did that happen? The so the story goes that you know he met Kublai Khan or some ministers around him and ingratiated himself or impressed them with his diligence and honesty, it was probably on account of his father and uncle, you know, vouched for him uh, that he started to do this. And he kept this up for a long time. As I'd mentioned, you know, Kublai Khan and uh, his empire needed independent people to do this sort of tax collecting so that they could maintain the empire. And uh, this was the sort of the hardest part because it was so huge. Marco Polo is a fascinating man, obviously, but 
he's he's kind of an archetype these days. He's he's an explorer. He's Marco Polo. He's famous. Did you get a sense of who he was as a person? Was that easy to decipher? For me, no, because uh, it was kind of uh, can, wrapped in the mists of history of different languages and, you know, doubts about uh, how much he actually did. I think he did most of what he wrote about, but clearly I think he incorporated other accounts into his own or passed some of them off as his own. But um, I, I did get a sense of his um, keen intelligence, his ability to ingratiate himself with people, his uh, survival skills, both cultural and in other ways. And I mean, in many ways, just his plain good luck as well. And I think I had mentioned earlier, I got a sense of his evolution over the years, uh, becoming more open-minded, if you will, and aware of other ways of life, spiritual paths, um, as uh, suggested by Buddhism, but maybe other, way, other ways as well, that he relinquished uh, as soon as he got back to Venice. But beyond that, I don't really have, uh, nobody really has a, um, you know, a treasure trove of Marco Polo idiosyncrasies or quirks, uh, because, you know, those kinds of records just didn't exist in those days. And as I mentioned, a lot of this had to do with being pre-Gutenberg. Uh, so the amount of specific detail you have, unless you're talking about royalty, there's very little specific detail about these historical figures. That's right. This Marco Polo was a, a fairly normal, the, using air quotes, he was a fairly normal yes. guy for the time. He wasn't royalty. So that is quite rare that, that we know of him to such an extent. Why do you think it is that Marco Polo and the travels of Marco Polo, the book, have maintained such fame for more than 700 years? Well, I think in the beginning, it became the go-to book, the main book about China and the Mongol Empire for the West. And so that was considered the Bedeker, the Traveler's uh, Bible. And then I think the fact that he wrote, or Rosticello, uh, Pisa, wrote these stories often in an entertaining and colorful way that also helped perpetuate its popularity. There was nothing else quite like it. As I said, there were some other accounts like it, but they were rather dry in comparison. And, uh, you know, they were useful, they were helpful, but they were nothing special. And uh, there were even some accounts of uh, Mongols or Chinese going along what we call the Silk Road uh, at the same time as Marco Polo in the other direction. As he was going from west to east, they, they were going from east to west. And they wrote about their account. It's, it's nowhere near as exciting and colorful, but it verifies a lot of what he wrote about in those days. But you're seeing it through different eyes. In some ways, I find that completely fascinating. Because when you get uh, different perspectives, you can compare them, and they tend to verify and as well as uh, amplify um, each other. So, you know, Marco Polo just happened to come along at a time when there was a vacuum quite by accident. He filled it when he set out or when his father and uncle invited him. They certainly had no intention of where or what this would become. Other explorers I've written about, Magellan and Columbus and others, you know, were extremely intentional. They were going to conquer. They had missions. They were divinely inspired, et cetera, et cetera. With Marco Polo, he was simply going as a trader, you know, as a merchant of Venice, quite literally, period. And he, we now think of him as a culture carrier, but that, that came much later and by accident. So I think that sets him apart from uh, other explorers because 
he was truly an accidental explorer. And when he got back to Europe, and his his fame certainly grew, this is after the, the book was published, how do you think Europe, the, the continent, how did it change? What did he do to Europe back then? How did That's a very good question. How did it change Europe? Well, I think it helped to make China and Mongolia seem more real and more accessible. And some of these innovations that he brought back, you know, technological ones, were incorporated, but many were not. For example, coal, which was, you know, actually phenomenally important, which makes you wonder why if he was, or, or paper money, why if he brought them back, it wasn't immediately, you know, copied and set upon and adapted and used. And I think it's because these kinds of innovations tend to be used when they arise, you know, independently in whatever culture they happen to be in. So it, it was a long time until coal or ground glass was actually adapted by Europe. Not as soon as Marco Polo brought it back. They said, oh, great, we can use this. We're going to start making glasses and telescopes and binoculars. You know, it was nothing like that. It was independently or reinvented, if you will, in the West before it was really accepted as being valid. We now know, looking back from a much broader perspective, you know, how much ahead of their time uh, the, the Chinese were. But at that point, it wasn't really seen that way. But it was still, it was seen as a very powerful, immense, wealthy empire that could be, you know, useful to trade with. Also, keep in mind, many people were trading for spices. And you may say, well, why go to all that difficulty for spices? Well, because you could buy them in any supermarket. Well, there weren't any supermarkets then. And the spices had, not only they have some specific value for preservation and things like that, uh, but they also, because they were portable, became a medium of exchange in and of themselves. So, okay, maybe they didn't have paper money, but they were trading cinnamon and cloves and four or five other spices in lieu of money. And it's the same with Magellan. When he went around, inspired partly by Marco Polo, um, he was looking for spices. And that's what, you know, when he passed up the opportunity to load his ships up with gold because he felt the spices were more valuable. That seems crazy to us now, but, you know, it says it's a different time. It's fascinating. Magellan was inspired of sorts by, by Marco Polo. So yeah. do you think it's fair to say that in a lot of ways, Marco Polo metaphorically, of course, brought China a little bit closer to Europe? It made Europeans broadly much more aware Yes, as you were saying that, that made me think, if there had been no Marco Polo, would Magellan have gone on this uh, voyage in terms of, you know, in search of spices, which uh, then became more of an imperialistic conquest, or not? And I, I, I really don't know. It, it certainly gave more of a, you know, impetus for uh, Magellan and others who want to be Magellans who didn't make it to go. And, you know, all of this looks a lot clearer to us in retrospect than it right. did at the time, because of course they're going forward in time and, you know, who knows in some historical eras, you know, current history, we don't really know what's going to happen in two weeks or two months, you know, in some cases, because there are so many variables. And I, I just think that Marco Polo with this fly and amber quality is, uh, you know, particularly an intriguing example. And it's the most open-ended book I've written out of the dozen or so that I've written because we can't nail everything down. 
when you're writing about a more modern subject post Gutenberg, you can pretty much nail everything down. What happened, when, and who, and so on. But with Marco Polo, you have to speculate more. You can't really tell. You have to try and uh, make allowances for different measurements and different standards. So in a way, that added intrigue to it. When I, when I started the book, I felt it was sort of semi-impossible to do. And, you know, did I fulfill everything I wanted to do with the book? Uh, probably not. But if I think if I pique people's interest and provoke them to, to think more deeply about it and demolish some of the, or, you know, discounted some of the cliches about Marco Polo and Art and Fallon, then I think it was um, also worth doing. Also, it's just such an entertaining story. I mean, there's a reason why there's so many Marco Polo miniseries and movies and on and on and on. Larry, I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. And my, my last question here, and I like to ask this of all my guests just to tie everything together. You've studied Marco Polo more than most people on the planet. And I'm, I'm curious, what lesson or lessons have you learned from your study of Marco Polo and his just fascinating and lengthy journey across the continent to Asia and back? What lesson or lessons can you apply from that study to today's world? Well, I think that everything is relative. It's still important to really keep an open mind. You know, there's that uh, expression, you know, where you sit depends on where you stand or, or vice versa, because your perspective or your cultural background, you know, uh, determines a lot of how you see the world and how you understand things and, you know, how you filter them. Also, it gave me an enhanced appreciation for the fantastic adaptations of uh, Mongols to living on the steppe. And they're very, they're still there. By the way, I, I spent a lot, a lot of time. I spent a couple of weeks in Mongolia camping out with them, following in what could have been Marco Polo's footsteps. You know, you don't find any signs saying Marco Polo slept there. But what he described, not, not obviously in a big city, but in Mongolia, is pretty much the way it is today. And uh, not in Ulaanbaatar, which is their big city um, and, and, and uh, you know, rather grimy and uh, kind of, um, you know, not that much fun. But once you get out on the step, you, the customs, the language, you know, the vibe, if you will, is, is the same. So this is really uh, extraordinary when he talks about, you know, the, what it was like. You know, one feels that, well, it was ever thus. And uh, that was... That was really extraordinary. Larry, thank you so much for the time. Really have enjoyed the conversation. I've learned a lot about Marco Polo, and I certainly will never think about a 15-hour flight as being quite as long as uh, I, I did prior to reading your book and, and the two-decade journey Marco went on. Again, if you want to learn more about Larry Burgreen and his work, visit lawrencebergreen.com. That's L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E. B-E-R-G-R-E-E-N.com. And Larry, thanks for all the time. Thanks, Alex. This has been a production of Riches and Power, hosted by Alex Dubay, edited by Sean Dooley. Copyright 2023 by Wesley Capital, LLC. 